coming up on this episode of Here's an Idea. The first prototype was simply a plexiglass rectangular box that we attached to the back of a conventional shoe. This is fabulous. This is unbelievable. These guys might be able to save the game of football. If you're working out or running or exercising, you probably have some sort of electronic device on you. Today, we have all kinds of ways to count our steps, track our heartbeats, and monitor how well we're sleeping. But it wasn't always this easy to get this kind of personal data. There was a time where the closest thing we had to a wearable was plugging your sneaker into a computer. Seriously. But we'll get back to that in a little bit. Manufacturers have been making efforts for some time now to accumulate data for sports and fitness. The data collected can be used to both prevent injury and enhance performance. But now that we're so connected, now that we have a lot of data, what do we do with it? And what can other people do with it? In this episode, we talk to one of the inventors of Puma's computer shoe. We also speak with a former NFL player and a former NFL coach about how wearable technology should and should not be used for player safety. We talk with a Virginia Tech researcher who's using accelerometers to make better football helmets. And we catch up with a writer from ESPN about how advances in player tracking are changing the NHL. In speaking with such a wide range of experts, we explore three questions. What wearables are available for athletes? What kind of data can be collected? And what can be done with that data? So, here's an idea. Sports. Let's go back to that sneaker that you plugged into a computer. In the mid-80s, it was considered a marvel of innovation or an odd-looking piece of footwear. Or maybe both. The RS computer shoe, depending on your point of view, either looked like a running shoe with an ugly bump on the back, or it looked like a fairly futuristic device where a streamlined enclosure was built into the heel of the shoe, projecting backwards. There was one on the right side and the left side, but only the right side contained active electronics. This is Dr. Peter Cavanaugh. He was the sports science advisor to Puma and the creator of the original RS computer shoe. Peter was given the task of creating the RS computer shoe by Armin Dassler, Puma's owner at the time. Uh, he wanted to do something different, and he challenged me to do uh, something that would put Puma out front technologically. And he didn't care what it was. He didn't care how much it cost. He just told me he wanted me to bring in something that would identify Puma as a leader in technology. And uh, so that's what we did. So Peter and his team got to work. At the time, he was conducting running research as a Penn State professor. His focus was on lower extremity biomechanics. Peter's had a long history in academics. Today, he's a professor at the University of Washington's Department of Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. I had the notion that if you knew something about the way the wearer was running, then you could do much more than predict step count. You could actually predict running distance. And this was also before it was feasible to incorporate 
GPS into the device. And so it was a matter of using the characteristics of the user's running style to predict distance. The original RS computer running shoe launched in 1985. It had a custom-designed computer chip built into the heel. There was an electronics module with a press-to-touch switch and a small LED for a user interface. There was also a flap which you could use to connect a serial cable. Runners could then plug in that sneaker via a 16-pin connector to any Apple IIe, Commodore 64, or IBM PC to view data like running time, distance traveled, and calories expended. There was no readily available Bluetooth connection then. So when you started to run, set out to run, you would press the button to uh, initiate sampling. And then when you were finished, you'd press again. And then at any time later, you would plug the shoe into your personal computer and the data would be uploaded via a serial port. So what would happen is that when the person first got the shoe, they would do a brief calibration run. They'd go on a 400-meter track or a 440-yard track, and they would do a couple of laps, and they would count the number of strides they had at a given speed. Then they would increase the speed and increase the speed and put that data into an app that we provided. Now, in those days, it wasn't a matter of downloading the app from the internet. The app was actually provided on a five and a quarter inch floppy disk. So you can tell just uh, most of your listeners probably won't even remember that there was such a thing as a floppy disk. So you'd, you'd run the app. It had uh, the kind of features you see in today's activity trackers. It would let you track your uh, your runs, how far you'd run, you could enter comments, it would give you graphs of your history over the last week, the last month, the last year. So all of the sort of features you now depend on in an activity tracker and its accompanying app were there in this device. The shoe went through a number of designs. Dr. Kavanaugh began adding transistors to the sneaker with the help of a microcomputer engineer from Germany. The engineer built something called a gate array which is basically a matrix of transistors. Although primitive compared to today's technology, it was state-of-the-art at the time and allowed them to conduct the functions of the shoe and then store the data in flash memory. And Dr. Kavanaugh still has the first model in his office. The first prototype was simply a plexiglass rectangular box that we attached to the back of a conventional shoe. It was transparent and you could see the electronics, but it, it was proof of concept and enabled us to show that this technique would actually work. For a shoe that was state-of-the-art at the time, the reviews were not good. The Washington Post, for example, said that I was uh, uh, peppering my remarks with computer ease, with words like interfacing, compatibility, and user-friendliness, which really were objects of kind of derision at the time. Sports Illustrated said that uh, there was a bulge, which was the shoe's crowning feature, and uh, that I was a, a, a 2.45 marathoner with a monkish aspect. But Puma was on to something, even if the world wasn't quite ready for it in 1985. Times have changed. Though the Commodore is no longer with us, we've entered a world where everything is wirelessly connected. And Puma thought it was the right time to lace up the old sneakers, to go back to that original shoe and fit that idea into today. Puma released an updated version of the shoe in late 2018 on a limited basis. The new shoe retains the look of the original, but it adds new features like a three-axis accelerometer, a USB port for charging, and Bluetooth to connect to an app on your phone. How does Dr. Kavanaugh feel about the reissue? 
It's a nice affirmation that it was a good idea whose time had not yet come. I like what Kumar have done. It's a, it's a very nostalgic sort of thing. It's, of course, a limited edition reissue. But I think it does just put a marker down and say that this was something we were doing back in uh, 1984 to 1986 kind of time frame. And that uh, it really is something that people have come to value. Most of us will not go out to exercise anymore without some form of activity tracker. I know I won't. And I think that it was an idea that was ahead of its time during that era. Today's wearable technology has moved far beyond a plug-in sneaker, beyond your Fitbit or Apple Watch. We can add all kinds of sensors onto the uniforms and equipment that players actually wear on the field, their jersey or their football helmet, for example. Although barely noticeable to a player, the technologies have the potential to offer a trove of information. One avenue where this data is helpful is in tracking collision data for concussions. Concussions have been a major focus for the National Football League, as they try to limit head impact. Studies have found a link between repeated collisions and the degenerative brain disease, CTE. Although impact is unavoidable in such a full-contact sport, the NFL has changed their protocols and rules to address concussed players. Players can no longer initiate contact with their helmet, for example. Players showing symptoms of concussions must follow protocol to return to a practice or to a game. The NFL has used new helmets, too. One person who knows a lot about these new helmets is Steve Rosen. He is the associate professor in biomechanical engineering at Virginia Tech and director of their helmet lab. The Virginia Tech Helmet Lab is investigating how the head tolerates the kinds of high impact present in a sport like football. This research involves the identification of injury and how the body is responding to contact. That data is then used to inform how designers are making their helmets. I figure out the forces that cause injury to the human body. Because if you could understand those things, you can design interventions to prevent injury from occurring. To figure out those forces, Steve and his team instrument athletes with sensors, accelerometers within the helmet. The sensors collect data and characterize concussions using that data. This research has led to the Virginia Tech helmet ratings, which range from five stars, the best, to one star, providing consumers with an objective tool for looking at relative helmet performance. We're instrumenting the Virginia Tech football team with accelerometer arrays that get installed inside the helmets of players. And these accelerometer arrays continuously buffer uh, data. And whenever it senses a head impact, it records it and sends it wirelessly to a computer we have on the sideline. So it's kind of unique in that we get some real-time feedback into how the players are hitting their heads. But at the same time, we're capturing a very large data set that can characterize how these players are hitting their heads. The accelerometers measure acceleration, and angular rate sensors measure rotational velocity. These are two factors contributing to concussions, and both need to be measured. The way the accelerometers integrate into the helmet is they kind of protrude inward, um, and at the face of these protrusions are the accelerometers themselves. And the idea is that they're going to remain in contact with the head, because we want to measure what the head's doing, not what the helmet's doing. So they do feel six pressure points, essentially, where the accelerometers stick out and make contact with the head. Uh, but 
they acclimate pretty quickly. Uh, within a day or two, they don't notice it anymore. The researchers place the accelerometers into the helmets of the Virginia Tech team while they practice, while they scrimmage, and while they play every game. That's a large data set. And there's even more data, too. Virginia Tech started this work back in 2003, but they're also part of a much larger study. The Grand Alliance Care Consortium, funded by the NCAA and the Department of Defense, has gathered more than 37,000 participants in universities around the country and captured data on more than 3,300 concussions as of September 2018. That's an even larger data set. Prior to having the sensor data, not much could be said about how badly a college football player hit his head. With 16 years of data now, however, Steve and his team have a very good idea of which locations on the helmet are hit, how frequently they're hit, how hard they're hit, and which impacts are most likely to cause concussion. Through a series of lab tests, Steve's team is identifying which helmets reduce risk. Their five-star helmets are the best available, and the one-star helmets have the least amount of protection. When we first released football helmet ratings in 2011, I would say about 50% of all players were in a helmet that we rated as one star. The reason players are wearing that helmet is because no one knew any better. There were never any data available to consumers and players to suggest that helmet offered inferior protection relative to the other ones that were on the market. The one-star helmets from 2011 were too stiff and not thick enough. Manufacturing has since shifted towards a safer design, managing impact energy better by using softer foams and a slightly larger helmet thickness. We're trying to essentially engineer safer sport. And as an athlete, you know, I, I think they look forward to being able to participate in the research and help us achieve that goal. Using new wearables and accelerometers, Rosen's team is able to get impact data and make helmets safer. With these advancements, you'd think that football teams and coaches at the college and professional level would want to implement them right away, on a wider scale, to improve safety. Not so fast. John Shoup is now a history teacher at A.C. Reynolds High School in Asheville, North Carolina. He's also an assistant coach for the school's football team. Before that, he coached football for 26 years in the NFL and at major colleges like North Carolina, Vanderbilt, and Purdue. I took the idea to the football office and to our athletic director and our head football coach thinking the work that these guys are doing, uh, this is going to be a, a real recruiting edge. We're going to be able to go into the homes of, uh, you know, young men throughout the country and say we're on the cutting edge of this study. And what I thought was going to be the greatest recruiting tool uh, was really one of the reasons that I ended up getting fired at, at Purdue. John was the offensive coordinator at Purdue from 2013 to 2015. When he was a coach at Purdue, John, perhaps naively, thought impact data would be a selling point for Purdue, especially after John and his wife were invited to a dinner held by the NPR station WBAA in West Lafayette, Indiana. Purdue engineers were the speakers at the dinner, and I thought to myself, this is fabulous. This is unbelievable. These guys might be able to save the game of football. John is talking about Tom Talavage and Eric Noman, who are studying micro-concussions, or sub-concussive impacts. They presented data about these concussions at the dinner. Micro-concussions result from repeated hits to the skull, and though they don't produce acute concussions, they can result in the clinical signs and symptoms. Over time, these micro-concussions could have a significant cumulative impact. By the end of 2012, Tom and Eric had studied football players for two seasons at Jefferson High School in Lafayette, Indiana, where 21 players completed the study the first season 
and 24 the second season, including 16 repeating players. Helmet sensor impact data from each player were compared with brain imaging scans and cognitive tests performed before, during, and after each season. An accelerometer patch worn on the back of your neck measured rotation, as well as hits up to 50 G. Here's John explaining how he learned that microconcussions are the kind of injury that builds or boils. If the boiling point of water is 212 degrees, uh, once water boils, that's like the concussion. If the brain's heating up, they can tell you the brain's heating up on Wednesday. You need to back off because that person's close to reaching the boiling point. And what we were really interested in was preventing uh, concussions, not just dealing with the protocol. Once they have a concussion, what do we do? And so we were interested in measuring all the hits throughout the week in practice. Uh, what are the best methods to practice and how we can keep these hits, you know, well below uh, that boiling point of 212. In other words, it's a math problem. They just needed the starting numbers. But the idea was not accepted by John's colleagues at Purdue. The athletic director and the head coach wanted nothing to do with anything that had to do with head injuries or concussions. John was let go from the program in 2015. In a New York Times article published that year, sports business columnist Joe Nacera seemed to confirm that Shoup's departure had little to do with his coaching abilities. According to Nacera, the main issue appears to have been the open advocacy for college rights expressed by Shoup and his wife. As John settled into his new assistant coaching position at the high school, however, he wanted to try Tom and Eric's plan again, to get the kind of data that could reveal more about head injury and concussions. The plan in 2018 at AC Reynolds was they were going to take 20 players off the team, 10 on offense, 10 on defense, and give them a full MRI before the season, during the season, and after the season. Eric and Tom would provide patches, read MRIs, and measure accelerations all season long and monitor which drills were safest. The players had all agreed, and then a week before the season, John faced familiar resistance. This time in the form of a phone call. The superintendent of Buncombe County called John to say they were not going to continue with the project. This is past our principal, our head coach, everybody has been in agreement, and you're telling me less than a week away that your lawyers have questions. We're looking for places to maybe find next season as well to try to get those numbers. I think those numbers are incredibly valuable. One of the reasons why there is resistance to collecting this data, especially at the higher levels, is that those who care most about keeping the game alive might not want players to see any data that might indicate injury. If the players knew how much damage they were experiencing, and how much risk they were taking, they might not want to play. In 2015, Chris Borland, a first-year San Francisco 49er in the National Football League, saw corresponding data and decided to retire. This kind of early decision from such a promising player is not a common occurrence. Chris Borland played at Wisconsin where he was an All-American middle linebacker. In fact, he was a thorn in John Shoup's side when he played against him at Purdue, said the former coach. Chris was a third-round pick of the 49ers in 2014. He wound up starting his rookie year. He was concussed prior to the season in training camp. Nothing that wasn't commonplace for a middle linebacker. Uh, I filled a, a hole in a running play um, against our 290-pound fullback. 
um, you know, we collided and I kind of saw stars, had a little bit of a disequilibrium. What we, at the time, would have said I got dinged. That concussion prior to camp spurred Chris into looking further into the research of brain injury. The first set of data that struck him was Boston University's Brain Bank. The Veteran Affairs Boston University Concussion Legacy Foundation Brain Bank is the largest tissue repository in the world focused on traumatic brain injury and CTE. The Brain Bank contains more than 600 brains, including over 325 brains that have been diagnosed with CTE. This is all in the hopes of developing a diagnostic test for CTE in living people. A study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2017 found CTE in 99% of brains obtained from NFL players, as well as 91% of college football players and 21% of high school football players. The study garnered big-time headlines. 99% is an alarming rate, after all. But it was also the subject of criticism because of its inherent selection bias. Boston University could only study brains that were donated to its brain bank, and most who donated the brains already had reason to suspect the deceased player suffered from CTE when he was alive. That kind of data, however, was enough to show Chris that he was done with professional football. Borland retired from the game after his rookie season in the NFL. He has since become an advocate for players. Chris thinks the use of accelerometers is a good first step, but one that must involve the voice of the athlete and their experience. And so finding a way to include the subjective athlete's voice, the voice of the athlete from a, a subjective perspective, um, concussions and unseen injury. And I know we want to quantify it and get the numbers and measure it so that we can mitigate the harm. Um, but sometimes I think personal experience falls outside of the purview of what tech can tell us. And so finding a way to blend them skillfully, I think, would uh, best capture the issue. After all, Chris has ringing in his ears almost every day. He has imbalance sometimes thanks he thinks in large part to a giant hit he took in eighth grade that knocked him unconscious. The kind of impact that he thinks could have kept him out of the sport entirely if it happened today. His experience, his path to the NFL, his thousands of practices and games, can't be measured with an accelerometer. Chris doesn't think technology will be what solves the problem in a game where people are repeatedly hitting their heads at high velocity. Chris thinks the game is as safe as it can be while still being football. But I think you know, the game within the lines um, measures to make that safer are more PR than about, you know, substantive changes in terms of health. Um, whether or not you throw a flag when a player hits head helmet to helmet, that same G-force, that same collision happens every single snap for interior linemen, linebackers and fullbacks and running backs. So it's imperative that we're candid about this um, and give players the power to be informed and then make decisions. I think in five or 10 years, um, we'll still have a problem at hand and, and have spent a lot of time, money and energy, you know, making safer helmets when you could have just decided not to play a sport where you repeatedly hit your head. But um, I think most sensibly from the perspective of an athlete is you lose nothing uh, athletically by waiting to play tackle football until a later age. I think it's better for you cardiovascularly and uh, obviously you won't hit your head as much. In fact, Chris has supported a few pieces of legislation to ban youth football until a certain age, somewhere between 12 and 14, depending on the state. Despite Borland's best efforts in late 2018, the Illinois legislature lacked the votes. We're beginning to see change. It, it passed the Mental Health Committee in Illinois, uh, was crushed on the floor, but uh, set a precedent. So 
Um, I think it's inevitable that however long we won't be hitting five-year-olds in the head hundreds of times every fall. In the meantime, youth football is incredibly popular in the United States. And Steve Rosen and his team are working to keep even the littlest athletes as safe as possible. We're instrumenting large cohorts of kids to better understand which impacts are associated with injury and which ones aren't. But at the same time, really have an understanding of how frequently they hit their head, uh, where they hit their head. And it, it can inform not only equipment design changes, but policy changes in uh, reducing high-risk scenarios. So, for example, when we look at college football players and compare those to youth football players, I would say, and this is a rough estimate based on the data we have, but, you know, the kids are experiencing concussions at 25% less acceleration than what we see at at the college level. Um, So we are starting to tease out these differences, and that's really useful information for how we have, you know, age-specific interventions to reduce risk. No helmet is concussion-proof, says Steve. Protection against concussions, he says, requires a multi-pronged approach involving behavioral changes, player education, policy changes, and rule changes. There's always going to be incidental or accidental head impact. Um, And in those cases, uh, you want to have the very best head protection. So we're doing work in all those areas so we can effectively minimize the number of injuries that you'll see. You'll never get rid of them all, but you could take a big proportion of them out of the game. Much like the way Virginia Tech is using the data they're collecting to make helmets better and safer, John Shoup thinks the data can be used to make practices safer overall. You know, what we are trying to pursue is to get those numbers and figure out that sliding scale, but also develop practice methods to keep those numbers below. So every parent, every child, every coach, you know, has practical numbers that say, Listen, when we do tackling drills and we do them this way, those are 70 G hits. But if we do tackling drills and we do them this way, those are 35 G hits. Instead of using the technology to change the game or eliminate it altogether, John wants to use technology to keep the game alive. He loves the game. To save the game, he thinks, you first need the information. I think people were fearful that, you know, football is going away. Uh, fewer and fewer people are playing football. And if this data reveals that, boy, these micro concussions are a real thing, it will send uh, more people away from football and open up lawsuits, you know, to coaches and administrators in football. I happen to think, though, just the opposite would occur. If you develop methods and can absolutely prove to people Uh, that we're doing this safer than anybody else. Uh, This is the way to do it. We're holding coaches accountable. I think it'll make all the difference in the world. Uh, I'm not doing this because I hate football. I'm doing this because I absolutely love football and think this could be one of the things that, that saves it. Football may be resisting the use of monitoring technology, but another pro sport is embracing it. For the National Hockey League, there are all new kinds of wearables and technologies to track their players. But it's not about safety necessarily. 
there are different motives at play. So the thought is, is that if you have this new tech and during a game, you can bet on, you know, which of these two players is going to have logged the most miles in the game skating or, you know, where is the next shot coming from or, or this, you know, all these other things that could potentially be uh, accurately pinpointed by player and puck tracking technology. Well, now all of a sudden sitting in front of your TV and watching a hockey game is a lot more fun. This is Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer at ESPN. Beginning in 2015, the NHL had begun experimenting with a three-pronged approach for player monitoring. There was a puck with infrared sensor emitters, a set of 10 infrared cameras to track the puck from the top of the arena, and then wearable sensors slipped into the back of the players' jerseys. The setup, however, as you can imagine, was complicated. The infrared sensors in the puck proved to be too expensive, said Greg. The pucks apparently cost an exorbitant amount of money <laughs> to produce. And I don't know if, uh, if you've seen this in hockey, but occasionally they fly into the stands and, and fans can get them. Uh, so that's a lot of money flying into the stands each time. In January of 2019, the NHL announced that it was working with Jogmo, a maker of RFID tracking systems. In a regular season game, Jogmo's chips were placed in the pucks and players' shoulder pads. The chips, about the size of a quarter, generated official league data at a rate of 180 times a second. This game was part of a pilot program that the NHL may eventually expand. Jogmo's technology works like a GPS, but reversed. The signal that the satellites normally send to your GPS is actually put into the tags that the players wear and inside the puck. That signal then goes to an antenna area that's installed in the arena. The antenna network catches the signal from the puck and from the players, then calculates where the object is moving. With the combination of shoulder pad sensors, puck electronics, and arena antennas, there's suddenly all kinds of data available to track how a player is doing. There's obviously wearable tech now that you can put on your body during practices and during games to uh, check everything from your heart rate to muscle movement. Um, but in the NHL's case, and in the case of it being a fast-moving sport, player tracking and puck tracking is used to glean data and information from the game itself. What kinds of information exactly? For starters, basic hockey stats, the kind that show how well a player is playing. For example, one of the things that they use in hockey to determine whether a player or a team is good or not is called uh, puck possession. And so, you know, how often do you have the puck? Uh, you know, if you have the puck, the other team doesn't have it. it means you're probably doing pretty good. <laughs> so in the past, the way to, to determine something like that would be to count the number of shot attempts that a team has, you know, in order to glean what possession time was. But now with this puck and player tracking, we can better understand exactly how long the team has the puck and, and things of that nature. And it's going well beyond that, says Greg. There's shot velocity, individual skater speeds, distance traveled. More data that owners and scouts can use to better understand their players. You know, in the past, the, the data that you're working with in many cases is the data collected by the human eye. Uh, a guy sitting in a press box and counting the number of hits or counting the number of shots or things of that nature. So with player and puck tracking technology, you're going to be able to do this in a much more uh, accurate way than, than they've ever had. But it's not just the owners and players using the data to help their teams. With all kinds of real-time information available, Las Vegas sees new ways to get fans excited about the sport and to get them to make bets. Then it became pretty apparent that, you know, they are looking to partner with uh, Vegas sportsbooks to make them, you know, the official 
NHL stats partners in order to then use this proprietary data uh, collected from puck tracking to create new ways to wager on the game. So the data here is not being used for simple biometric reasons, to study heart rate or concussions. Now the data can be used to bet on who's fastest, who has the puck the most, who's logged the most miles on the ice. And the players love it. Oh, they hate it. Of course they hate it. <laughs> you know, they, they, they don't like change. I think in some cases, there's there maybe is a curiosity to see exactly how fast somebody skates or, or you know, getting that information, you know, down. But they're very, very sort of, I don't want to say superstitious, but but suspicious maybe is the better word whenever there's any change to their, their basic equipment. And even if this puck is within, you know, 0001, ounces to what an actual puck feels like uh they're all gonna they've already said many of them that the puck feels different so it's hard to get past that sort of mental notion that there's something inherently different with the puck they're using and and they don't like that So the NHL players apparently hate being tracked. When you think about it, wouldn't you? Imagine you went to work every day and your Apple Watch told your boss how much you slept last night. If you're a server and your manager could track total distance traveled over the course of your shift, would you want that? Now that the technology is at a level small enough that we can place it on players and get all kinds of extra data about what people are doing, the question becomes a more moral and personal one. Like any measurement tool, the question now becomes, what do you do with the data, and why? Who's getting the data, and how will they use it? Players, even amateurs and consumers, may want to see their own data to track their performance. I think you exercise for a number of reasons. You, you exercise, obviously, to feel better, but as far as exercise adherence is concerned, the feedback over time that you have been consistently exercising in a manner which can be quantified, I think is inherently satisfying to, to most people. This downloaded record of our activity history has become a diary of a very important part of our life and it memorializes that activity and makes us feel good about the activity that we've been doing. Coaches like John Shoup want to use that data as a recruiting tool to make football safer by adjusting high-impact practices and plays. Yeah, the information can be, uh, you know, eye-opening, can, you know, make your heart skip a beat. But if you have the information, the second part of it is developing practice methods that keep the head accelerations uh, to a minimum or below a, a, a threshold to be determined. Owners and general managers suddenly have better data about their player, the kind of information that can impact contract negotiations for good or ill. I mean, I could see a dystopian future where, you know, Robert Kraft owns the biofeedback from the accelerometer and a Patriots player's helmet and uses it against him in contract negotiations. If you're an older player looking to get a new contract and a team can come back and say, well, here is the uh, degradation of your skating speed over the course of six months or something like that, then maybe it's not going to be all that much in your favor. Vegas suddenly has real-time information that they can use to create new betting categories, which makes more money for sportsbooks 
and has the potential to make the game more fun to watch for casual fans. There's always a question of, well, how come it's taken this long to get this technology going? And, and the real answer uh, that I've gotten from the National Hockey League is until it became financially you know, relevant insofar as you know, legalized sports betting throughout the United States and the uh, sports books partnering with the NHL to get this information, there was no real incentive to do it. From the relatively humble beginning of just wanting to log jogging data and count your steps, wearable technology has evolved leaps and bounds. Now we can measure those leaps and bounds precisely and use that information however we'd like. This has been an episode of Here's an Idea. This episode was written and produced by me, Billy Hurley, Kendra Smith, and Peter Bonavita. For more information about the technologies featured in today's podcast, you can visit our episode page at techbriefs.com podcast. Here we'll link to images and provide interview transcripts with our guests. Our podcast page also gives you an opportunity to subscribe to our Here's an Idea newsletter, which provides photos, facts, and follow-ups on the technologies and technology creators featured in each episode. And we want to hear from you. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts and send us feedback to podcasts at techbriefs.com. <laughs>